Good morning. I perhaps met some of you early September when I spoke here. Uh, I'm mainly known as Emma's former professor. She was in my major, and I delighted in her as a learner and student and young lady, and glad she's having service here. My wife would be with me, but she never gets to come when I speak at a church because she's pianist at Cornerstone PCA Church in Irmo, Columbia, the little suburb of Irmo, a little northwestern community not far from Columbia. So uh, that's where I attend and have been for all the years I've been at Columbia. I taught there for 38 years full-time at Columbia International in church education, church ministry, leadership, and Bible teaching. And I still teach one course at the prison. We have an AA degree for prisoners, and I teach a course on how they can lead Bible studies within the prison, and they get the practice doing it. So it's a treat. But I've discovered as I age that I don't have the energy I once had. Maybe uh, some of you young ones, I know you're a young church. Uh, you don't identify with that yet. I want to ask you a few questions before I read the text for today. And not all of them will apply to you, perhaps none of them. But they have certainly applied to me in my many years as a Christian since I was a boy. First of all, if you happen to be here but don't know Jesus, it must mean that you are at least open and seeking. And you may be wondering, why should I follow him? Why should I give my life to him? What's he like? Or you may have an avenue of service. It may be as an elder. It may be as a deacon. It may be... I guess they're in another room, but the part of the praise team, uh, you teach Sunday school, you parent your kids, that's your main ministry if you have them. Sometimes you get tired. Sometimes there's opposition or criticism. And you get weary. And there's a lot of uh, unjust criticism or opposition. So if you are ever weary and not giving up your faith, but thinking you just may need to quit and not serve, um, then I think today's message may speak. Or perhaps, like many Christians I deal with, and like me when I was younger, you're very frustrated over your lack of spiritual growth. Have you ever wondered and said something like this, Lord, I think I'm in pre-kindergarten spiritually, and yet I've been a Christian for years. Lord, I fail you so often, and we tend to look at ourselves and just feel very discouraged. It's like every time I take three steps forward, I take two backwards. By the way, you're still ahead of step. That's the case. But you get frustrated over your growth or the rate of it. Sometimes you may wonder, what can I do better? Or am I even a Christian at all? Or perhaps you picture God as someone who, though you're a Christian, that he's frustrated with you. He's pointing a finger, just waiting for you to mess up. There's a bit of a part of our culture's performance orientation, and it's very real in ministry as well. And you have a, a view of God that's not quite one of grace. Or you feel perhaps you've had a conversion in recent years, and you know what you were like as a teen and young adult or younger adult, and you think, God could never use me, whatever your vocation, he could never use me significantly in his kingdom work. Look at who I was. Have you ever felt that way? But today's message should speak to any of those questions and more. Now let's read the text. The message title is 
what's so amazing about grace. We always know John Newton's well-known hymn, the most famous gospel hymn of all time in terms of reputation, Amazing Grace. But what's so amazing about it? And after I read the passage, we'll deal with two primary questions. Why is it so amazing? And this text will read, what is there about grace that is indeed extraordinary? But we'll also ask, in light of receiving it, how do I respond to it? So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. He had just been dealing with some false teachers there in Ephesus where Timothy is a pastor. Timothy, of course, worked with Paul on some of his missionary journeys. But now he's pastor of sorts in Ephesus. And Paul says this to Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though, Paul says, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all, this is about 25 years after his conversion. That's how he perceived himself. And yet for this reason, he says, I found mercy, it's repeated, in order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Then he breaks out in doxology. Now to the king eternal, immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to pray briefly. Father, I pray that I would not be concerned today with how I perform or how I'm perceived as a speaker. I pray my focus and attention will be on what you want to teach us from this text. I pray that what you have impressed upon me that I could communicate accurately and clearly. And Lord, I need your Holy Spirit to do that. Father, I can only reach the ears of anyone here, no matter how well I may say it, but you have to take it to the mind for comprehension and to the heart for application. I pray you would do that. I pray that you would show us yourself and that we may fall in love more and more with you. Amen. First, why is grace so amazing? Well, the first reason is it's hyper. When you see or hear the word hyper, I'm wondering what comes to your mind. Now, in a class, I would get feedback, but I'm asking that rhetorically. When you, what do you associate with the word hyper? Who or what comes to mind? Perhaps you think of a child. I saw a video once of a church children's choir, and this little boy on the front row must have had a lot of sugar before he came to that choir practice because they were singing a song. They weren't encouraging the choir director wasn't in emotion, but this little boy was literally jumping up and down and all the other kids trying to sing around him. And then he goes in circles, elbowing all the people around him. He's in the middle of the front row. 
And then he jumps up and down on his feet and he just starts laughing. He's hyper. Hyperactivity is the word we use. We also have a disease. I had a beloved Dodson I had to put down in August. It broke my heart. I still cry some nights. And, but he was over 16 years old. But he had hyperthyroidism. And people can have that. It's where the thyroid gland is overactive. It has extravagant functioning, and it causes everything from mood swings, panic attacks, depression, but it can also cause you to have a higher heart rate, and it can be dangerous because it raises blood pressure. So we often use that term negatively as in, boy, he's hyperactive today. Can't get him to settle down, or even of disease. But grace is hyper. Look again at verse 14. By the way, grace, two main words here. Grace mentioned once, but superlatively, as we'll see. And mercy is mentioned twice. Those are the traits behind Paul's salvation that God initiated. More on that in a moment. But grace is simply receiving from God what I don't deserve. Not just salvation, but other benefits as well. And mercy is withholding as a sinner, what I do deserve. Because God is holy, he must punish sin. I deserve his just punishment, but I'm so glad as a Christian that God isn't just in relation to me. I'm glad he's gracious. I'm glad he gives me what I don't deserve. I'm glad he's merciful. He withholds from me what naturally I do deserve. But in verse 14, look at what he says about grace. The grace of our Lord was more than abundant. That term, more than abundant, is a, it literally, from the Greek, is the word we get hyper from. Hyper abundant. It's already abundant, and then it's overactive hyper. I don't know about you, but even as a Christ follower and one in ministry, sometimes I have days when I can't believe my sin nature. I can't believe how vulnerable I am to certain temptations that I thought I'd conquered. And I just have to remember that whenever my old nature and my sin wants to get hyper, the Lord has even hyper grace to match it. Amen. Hyper grace. It, it means excessively. Super abundant is what it means. He could have just said it's abundant. But he says it's hyperabundant. So remember, God's grace is amazing, first of all, because it's overactive. It's hyperactive. And that's a good form of the word. So why is it so amazing? It's hyper. But also because grace chooses us for salvation like he did Paul. Grace chooses us. What I'm going to share is not just a Presbyterian doctrine. It's a biblical doctrine for the church in general. But notice in verse 12, I thank the Lord who strengthened me. He considered me faithful, putting me into service, and so forth. God chose him. You know the story, Acts 9. Saul, that was his name earlier before he was changed to Paul, was a devout Pharisee who did not believe in Jesus. But he was giving hearty assent, according to Acts 8, 1 through 3, in the first few verses of Acts 9, when Stephen was stoned to begin a round of persecution by the Jews against the Christian, Saul was in hearty agreement. He even held the cloaks of those who picked up the rocks and threw and killed Stephen. Oh, but that's not all. He began breathing threats of murder, Acts 8 and 9 say, against the church. He would literally go house to house and pick up men and women and have them dragged and put in incarceration just because they were a Christian. Just because they were a Christian. 
and he ravaged the church, it says in Acts 9. This is the man who became the apostle Paul. God chose him, and it took God's mercy. He didn't get what he deserved. He got grace, which he didn't deserve. On the road to Damascus, where he was going with letters from the high priest, giving him permission to get Christians there who would claim Christ and bring them back to Jerusalem to be imprisoned, as you know, the Lord appeared to him miraculously and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Identifying with his persecuted church. There was something there that Paul did not, Saul did not get up one day and said, well, I think I'll start believing in Jesus today. He didn't say, I think that would be a good idea. No, it was grace. It was God did it. God initiated it. And that's true for all of us when we understand God's choice. Most of you, hopefully all, but most of you probably know the Lord. And whether that came through somebody's personal evangelism, through a sermon, an opportunity to receive Christ in a service here, or it came through somebody one-to-one -one witness to you, you put your faith in Christ, and that's a secondary to what happened first. God chose you first for salvation. Out of the blue, he said, you're mine. Because it says very clearly in Ephesians 2, 1 through 4 and 1 through 5. I won't turn there, but Paul is addressing Christians. And he says, you were dead, Ephesians, in your trespasses and sins. You were captivated by the world's lust and the world's value system. You were enemies of God. You were objects of God's wrath because of his holiness and your rebellion and your sin. But then he said, but God had mercy in verse 4, and then in verse 5, that you were saved by grace through faith. And in verse 8, it says the same thing. He said, it's not something that you can brag about. It's not coming from yourself. God did it. Your salvation for believing in Christ is a grace. He did it. If I understand that, that's the doctrine behind that is not, the word is not in this text, it's elsewhere but it's regeneration, the word we get new birth from. Regeneration, theologians say, is an act of God where at a certain point in time, we may not even be able to identify it, we came to the point where our, we chose to put our faith in Christ and we saw ourselves as a sinner and believed in him and who he was in his resurrection. But before we put our faith in him, the scriptures in Ephesians 2.8 is very clear. His grace worked First, to create in me an openness to the gospel. That's regeneration. God chose me. Charles Spurgeon, a great Baptist preacher many years ago, said, God must have chosen me before I was born because he certainly wouldn't have chosen me afterward. <laughs> but here's something that as I get into the Christmas season, it just, I know it's an old metaphor, but you'll at least get it. And if this doesn't light your fire, your logs are all wet. But when did the first, when did Jesus come? Was near the beginning of the first century? When was he born? When did he die on the cross? Was it 33 or so AD? No. It says in Ephesians 1:4 that he chose us in him for salvation from the foundation of the world. Now, I know that's a fancy phrase, but it basically means before the created order began. 
In 2 Timothy 1.9, he's talking to Timothy there about the, the grace of salvation in that verse. And then he says, it was grace that we received, grace for salvation, before the world began, before, from eternity past, which means before creation. In Revelation 13.8, one well-known translation of that verse it's a little fuzzy in some readings, but it basically says Jesus was a lamb slain. When was Jesus slain? Before the foundation of the world. Listen, folks, if you know the Lord, before there was a garden in Eden, he chose you because he was a lamb slain for you before the foundation of the earth. When we understand that God is the initiator of our salvation and coming to faith, that God is the initiator of it, it causes us to praise him. I can't take credit for it. I didn't get up one day and choose him. He chose you. That's one reason grace is so amazing. It's hyper in amount, but it also, he chose us. Think about this in Acts 16, 14. Paul there is ministering, called on a missionary journey to Macedonia. He's in Philippi. Lydia understood God, had some Jewish background perhaps in that Gentile city, but she's down by the riverside hasn't heard about Christ, and Paul goes and shares the Lord with her. The text says in Acts 16, 14, something very profound. The Lord opened the heart of Lydia. Paul didn't do that. The Lord opened the heart of Lydia to respond to the words of Paul. Boy, when you witness, when you teach, even Christians, God has to do a work first, but certainly when it's salvation. That's why when your church has outreach, or you have personal evangelism opportunities, you get people to pray for you because it's not just a human endeavor to share the gospel. It's a divine work. God has to open the heart even though he uses us weak instruments and human instruments as messengers. So it's hyper because God chooses you. God, chooses. God also, it's hyper because God calls us to service. Now that principle is not directly here, but he does say in verse 12, about his own life as an apostle, and of course an apostle had two prerequisites. I don't like it when certain church traditions today where people, men and women, are called apostles because that's not the biblical sense of the word. Leaders, pastors, that's great, but I don't believe apostle was someone first who saw the resurrected Lord. That certainly happened to Paul on Acts 9. And second, had a direct commission from Jesus Christ himself. And Paul certainly had that in Acts. A few days later, of course, he was blinded at first from that encounter. And in Acts 9, verse 15 or so, he told the prophet who would come and work with Paul, he said, he said, he is a chosen instrument to the Gentiles for me. His call to salvation and call to service was one and the same, or at the same time. That's not normally true. Whether your ministry is an elder here or a teacher of children or a Bible study leader for small groups, or it's a parent, whoa, what a ministry. Then it is a privilege and it's grace, and he strengthens you for it. But he called him to ministry, and he calls you. I won't go into great detail, but in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, he talks about our conversion. Therefore, we're a new creation in Christ. And then he goes in to say in Acts 5, pardon me, in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, that all of us, not just speaking about him and his team, but you at Corinth, all of us are being given the ministry of reconciliation. It may not be up front as a teacher. It may not be up front as a musician. It may be behind the scenes. The whole issue of grace gifts comes into play here. 
but nonetheless, he has given you some form of informal or formal ministry of reconciliation because when your pastor comes and starts December 31st, you know, he's not called here to do the work of the ministry. Scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture says he's here through his preaching, through his counsel, through his prayers, through his training and those he works with and his team. He's here so that the church can do the work of a ministry. In Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, this is a whole message in itself. Paul lists some of the offices of the early church, such as you know, the apostles and the evangelists and so forth. And then he says, pastor teachers, why did God give us those leaders, verse 12, that they, not the leaders, but the saints, may do the work of the ministry? So I hope you find the ministry here or in your community and get encouraged and training for it. But it's a grace that God would use you to impact eternity for someone. Whatever the role is, behind the scenes or up front, teaching or not, it is a grace that you're called. By the way, in verse 12, in light of weariness, in light of discouragement, lack of seeing results, you may need to have strength for your ministry. I know I do. And it says, the Lord has strengthened me. Literally, what that phrase is saying, God has been a strength imparter to me and my ministry as an apostle. Boy, did he go through a lot of opposition. Look at the end of 2 Corinthians 11. All the beatings and all the floggings and all the shipwrecks and all the deprivation, cold and hunger. And yet he persisted because he had seen a risen Lord. This is not the topic today, but if you want evidence historically that confirms the resurrection of Jesus, you think about what Paul was and then what he became. And you may, you may, nobody dies like Paul did in execution after the closing of his time in the New Testament. Nobody dies for a lie. Nobody dies for what they know to be a lie. But they will die for what they believe to be true because in his case of eyewitness. So it's hyper grace. God calls us and chooses us to salvation, which we can't do anything about that. He did it. But, and dead men can't choose. And Ephesians 2 said, before you were a Christian, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. I just put in my margins there, Terry, a dead person can't choose. They have no choice. God had to do something to enliven that heart and that mind. And third, God calls us and equips us for service in some sphere. But and here's one that really lights my fire. God changes us. God changes us once we know him. It may be slow, it may be frustrating, but he changes it. Well, you have a dramatic example here. There's three words that describe Paul, as I mentioned earlier, in his life before his conversion and before the Lord intervened. And he, he versed in verse 13, I was formerly a blasphemer. That's literally one who denied the, de the deity of Jesus. He certainly didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, not until he met him on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. He was a persecutor, we already thought. He was holding the robes of those who threw the stones at Stephen. But also, he dragged people in to prison because they simply believed Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And he also... He breathed threats and murder against the church. Violent aggressor, and that phrase is a term that literally means bully. An arrogant bully who thinks he's better than everybody else. That was Paul. Oh, I'm, I love that. 
contrast. It's like Paul's saying, excuse me while I change. <laughs> Sometimes when we go pick up a date or something and she's not quite ready, excuse me while I change. Well, that's the life of a Christian. It's slow. If you're like me, sometimes you're frustrated. I guess it's normal for those of us who teach, but I feel so much farther behind than what I teach and how I live. But sometimes I realize that, okay, three steps forward, two steps back. Like I said earlier, that's still progress, however slow it is. But I get frustrated. I get frustrated over the rate of growth or certain attitudes or things in my life that are difficult. But the Lord changes me. Here's what I think about. If you're frustrated over the rate of growth, be, realize this, that if you really came to the Lord, whether it was six months ago or six years ago, you may not be who you want to be yet, but chances are you're not who you once were either. You can see some ways, some ways that the Lord in his grace has changed you and given you the power to grow spiritually. There's another concept related to that that has encouraged me. You know your own vulnerabilities to sin. Temptation is not sin. Vulnerability is not sin, but there's areas where I'm more prone to be tempted, and that may differ among us. In light of that, I I think, Lord, you didn't just save me from who I was beforehand, but you also saved me from who I would have become, from what I would have done as I grew up. Do you know what you would have become in light of your own weaknesses now in temperament or in character? I know I was an expert at shoplifting as a child and adolescent. I could go into any store, especially in cold weather when I had a coat on with pockets. And knowing they may be looking at me, I would put marbles or BB guns. That was me in the country of North Carolina where I came from. But I didn't just walk out with them. I would go through the line, and then I would put them out and pay for them, except I didn't put all of them out. I would keep one in the pocket, so I saved money that way. And so I never got caught, at least not by them. Or I know what it's like. I've never been unfaithful to my wife. I've never touched another woman physically but I know what it's like to have lust. And I think, Lord, there's no doubt in my mind, and I've had opportunities. I used to be somewhat handsome. I've had opportunities, but the Lord has not just saved me from who I was. He saved me from who I would have been without him, and that's an amazing concept to me. And I thank him for that grace. So grace changes us, however slowly. It is helpful to understand, like Paul, not to grovel over it, not to live there, but to understand what we were and how he's changed us. It's spiritually healthy to remember, not to grovel in it, not to mope around because of what we used to be like before salvation, but it's healthy to know what he saved us from and what he saved us from being because Paul looked back, but he didn't stay back because he focused on grace. Also, it's seen here is that grace helps us against indwelling sin of the believer. Now, I believe all of you, if you're honest, would realize that as a Christian, even though you're new and you're not sinless, hopefully you sin less, but you're not sinless. But there is a doctrine that a Puritan who's considered the greatest devotional writer among the Puritans, John Owen, over 300 years ago, he pastored a church. He warned the Christians of his day 
who were complacent about their faith, not to take for granted what he called the indwelling sin of the believer. He said it's not being taught, it's not being preached. Now he emphasized the Holy Spirit within us as Christians. He emphasized that we don't have to yield to a pattern of sin. He never called for perfection, but he said if we, we can take our sin for granted if we're not careful. So Paul says, not I was the chief of sinner, look at the text. It says in verse 15, Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. 25 years or so after conversion, he still saw himself with great potential to fail the Lord. Even though he was a great Christian leader, he didn't fail the Lord dramatically, but he knew his heart. And I fear so many young Christians with the emphasis on Christian liberty, and some of that I certainly tout, are not taking for granted they're exposing themselves to things that I wouldn't dare expose myself to. Folks, when I was a young adult, decades ago, I saw one X-rated movie. I was a Christian at the time, but not a very strong one as a young man. And I was forgiven, lock, stock, and barrel. But you know that I still have consequences. Even though I'm forgiven, I'm still vulnerable to certain things. And I haven't seen one since like that but I've seen TV channels where there was simulated sex and so forth, even on the old Matlock series of the 1980 with Andy Griffith playing the lawyer. That's a PG show. But I still remember a scene years ago that when I'm alone and I'm traveling and I'm away from my wife, I still see that scene in the bedroom of simulated sex. It wasn't real porn. You didn't see much. You, I can't expose my heart to that. I have to guard my heart. Proverbs 423, guard your heart with all diligence. Why? From it flow the springs of life. I'm not trying to be legalistic here. I'm the last thing from legalistic. But I do, I can't trust my heart. Years ago, there was, and I know he's a fine man. He's still writing and ministering to my knowledge. But it was a, he wrote a book to men that sold over a million copies. And this man kept saying he was trying to get men to really have a ministry to be the head of their homes. And I know his motive was right, but he kept saying something that scared the daylights out of me. And I wrote in margin, no, no. He said, you can trust your heart. You can trust your heart now that the Lord lives within you. No, I can't. Yes, I have the Holy Spirit within. I don't have to sin. At the same time, Proverbs 4.23 has not been taken out of Scripture. Guard your heart. If I have to guard my heart, if I, if I can trust my heart, why would I have to guard it? Why would I have to guard it? So there are things in my growth that I had to cooperate, cooperate with for change. Another former writer of another era, George MacDonald, a novelist, actually said, the only worse thing than being a sinner as a Christian is not being aware of it. When I'm aware of my tendencies and my areas of weakness, I don't grovel in it. I don't feel false guilt over what God has forgiven, but I do guard my heart because I don't trust it. I do have to choose to use a means of grace to overcome it because that's grace, whether that's prayer. I, I think of the Psalm 41.4. How many times I've prayed that verse back to the Lord. Oh, Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Like one of the song lyrics said, when we blow it, we go to him, we come. And he doesn't cast us out because he sees us with Christ's righteousness as a Christian. But I do have to come and confess. By the way, confession has two things. You probably will be encouraged to do that with communion in a little while. Uh, but 
uh, you not only, confession doesn't, it means to say the same thing as. It was a verse written in 1 John 1, 9, 2 believers. To confess our sins to the Lord and he will forgive you. That's written to Christians. Confess isn't just saying the same thing as. It's not just saying, yes, I've blown it. I've sinned against the holy God. I, I acknowledge this. So that intimacy is not destroyed. I don't believe my salvation is at stake here. But the intimacy and fellowship is not destroyed. And my youthfulness is not hindered. But it also, I confess something else. I agree that Jesus' death on the cross paid for it. Lock, stock, and barrel. When he said, right before he took his last breath on the cross, and he said, it is finished. As you probably know, that's a phrase that was used in the first century of his day to when someone paid off a bill to somebody they owed in the community, and it was witnessed by somebody, and they wrote a phrase at the bottom. It literally translated, it is finished, paid in full. That sin's paid for, revel in it. That's grace. But also, we need to make sure we don't take our sin for granted. So we need to use means of grace. My prayers, my confession, my intercession. When you're tempted, I, as I am often, I sometimes think, Lord, your word says in 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, it says, the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. And he will protect you and strengthen you against the evil one. And, and he will make a way of escape if I come to him and ask for that. It's part of the means of grace is to pray and ask for his strength when we are weak and so forth. So we need sustaining grace that he gives us as well. But I don't want you to think that this is teeth-gritting effort. Yes, there's means of grace I choose to use. I guard my heart and my ongoing desire to grow. But Elise Fitzpatrick, E-L-Y-S-E, Fitzpatrick. The book is technically geared to women, but boy, it's one of the best I've read. I don't read many devotional books. It's 31 short chapters, two or three pages each. It's titled Comforts from the Cross. And she balances the emphasis upon I need to choose to use means of grace for my holiness. She balances that with the perspective of what really motivates us to obey. She says, if love for God isn't present in her heart, then Godward obedience will be absent in her life. The key to a godly life is not more and more self-generated effort. Jesus said that if we love him, your obedience will flow naturally from that love. The secret to obedience isn't formulaic steps found in a self-help book. It's a relentless pursuit of love for him. And I'm trying to show a portrait here of the mercy and grace that makes him a loving person. How do, she said, how do I cultivate love that motivates obedience? And here's important. By focusing more on his love for me than on my love for him. More on his obedience than on mine. More on his faithfulness than on mine. More on his strength than mine. The plain truth is that my love for God and hence my obedience will grow as I cultivate my comprehension of his vast love for me. If we neglect this by focusing too much on ourselves and what we aren't doing in our own success or failure, we become mired down in either guilt or pride, resulting in the awareness, resting in the awareness of our perfect acceptance before him and his intense desire to have us for his own causes us to please him. So the motivation must be love. So when I go to the word 
devotionally, read through a book like right now, it's Jeremiah. I say, Lord, show me yourself today. I want to love you more. I need to see you here, your heart, so that I love you more because I won't love sin less unless I love you more. So there's some of the reasons grace is amazing. Briefly, how do we respond to it? Well, in verse 12, he says, I thank the Lord. He's referring to his calling to salvation and service in that context. We thank him through song, through prayers, through gratitude. We don't take it for granted. And that's one reason you have communion, to remember, through the Lord's Supper, to remember his blood shed and his body broken for us. So through gratitude, I don't take it for granted. Through praise and worship, some of that was done corporately this morning. Some of that can be done privately. In verse 17, he just, he probably wasn't planning to write this, but through the Holy Spirit's encouragement, he did. After he talked about what he was like before and, and now the grace he received as foremost of sinners, he says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible. He starts talking about the character of God and about giving him honor and glory through our praise. But he also respond through personal testimony. You can see much more detailed testimonies of Paul before unbelieving rulers like in Acts 26 before Herod Agrippa. But this is a brief version of his before after. Whether it's in letters, whether it's over the phone, can you joyfully, winsomely say something about your story? Here's how the Lord chose me. Here's how I met him. Here's some differences he is in the process of making. But don't just share stories, share the gospel truth as well about his death and resurrection and why. We have to come to him, our own sin. But share your story. But here's, I want to wrap up with this. I hope I can say it clearly. But the real way to respond to the grace he gives, not only at salvation, but also to keep me from temptation, to help me grow, to help me serve, the, the key is not through our own feeling like we have a debt to grace. The key is just asking for more grace. Did you know that that is literally the most important thing we can do when we get grace, a provision, an answer to prayer, help against temptation, or when we're weak and needy and he keeps us going and helps us persevere in this life? The, the main way to respond is simply to say, Lord, I need more grace because I need it every day. I'm desperate. John Piper emphasizes this in my favorite John Piper book that first came out in the 1990s, I think it's been revised, called Future Grace. But he says in there, the main response to grace is to keep asking for more and how that gives God glory, because it says in verse 17, to him be honor and glory. Charles Spurgeon said, and I'm gonna give you the verse on which he based this. Think about this, God gets from us most glory when we get from him most grace. The more grace I get for whatever I need over temptation, raising my kids, helping me in purity, overcome whatever, the more grace I get, the more he gives glory. How can that be? Psalm 50, 15 is perhaps the most important verse that I've come across that's helped my Christian living and my prayer life. We know that the verse doesn't mean we'll never have trouble because the total teaching of scripture is quite different. But it says, call on me in the time of trouble to his people. Whatever that trouble is, wisdom for a decision, wisdom in raising our kids, especially through adolescence. 
wisdom needed in our service, the perseverance needed not to quit, the perseverance not to yield to temptation. Call on me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you. I will do something, either in you and or in your circumstances. And here's the end, the grammatical connection in the Hebrew. Call on me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. How do I honor the idea of glorify God and make him look good? Not when I'm strong, even though that may honor him. Not just when I resist temptation, though that certainly honors him. Not just when I serve him, hopefully with the right motive. That's good, but that's not enough. When I am weak and needy, when I need rescue, when I, whether I'm tired physically or whether I'm afflicted, I need grace daily. There's a direct link. How does God get glory? When I'm in trouble as a need, when he does something because I go to him with it, come to me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you. I'll act, and he will do what only God can do. The idea of glorify God comes from a root that had something to do with weightiness or heaviness. What does God's glory mean? He's heavy and weighty in the sense of significance. There's no one like him. So when I come to him in my weakness and whatever my need is as a Christian, and I give him a chance to do something that I can't do, only he can do it, I am giving him a chance to look good. That's a profound concept. Lord, I'll come to you in my weakness because I'm about to fall of this temptation. Lord, I'll come because I'm having trouble forgiving this person that hurt me grievously. Whatever the need, come. He gets glory and gives grace to help. So, so remember that one other passage before I close in Hebrews 4. This is talking about Jesus' own earthly life as a man, though perfect, he did not sin. <clears throat> Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Now this is the response that I'm talking about, just asking for more grace. He talks about in verse 14, we have a high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. That literally means to suffer with. He suffers with us when in our pain who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet, in his case, without sin. Therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in the time of need. In John 6, 37, Jesus said, and there's a double negative here, and I'll translate it, but he says, I will certainly cast out no one who comes to me. But here's the literal rendering. John 6, 37, I will in no wise cast out those who come to me. I will certainly never ever cast out anyone who comes to me, whatever the need is. That's his promise. I will never ever cast them out. Last year at Christmas season, I heard a course, maybe some of you heard it here, that's relatively new. I'd never seen the lyrics before, and when I got home, I only remembered the idea of it. It was, O come, all ye unfaithful. Have you heard that? Oh, can I identify with that? I didn't look up the lyrics. I just remembered the concept. So I'm a poet. I don't know how good, but I'm a poet. And over several days, a little bit at a time, I, I expanded that idea. O come, all ye needy. This is our joy. Come and ask for more grace. That's how he 
gets more glory. O oh, come, all ye needy, broken and despairing. Bring your worries and the burdens you are bearing. Come if you are grieving, tears rolling down your face. If regrets loom large and you're desperate for grace. O oh, come, all ye tempted, on the brink of sinning. Employ God's means of grace each day, a new beginning. Come, all you who are hurting, your body racked by pain. Ask God to redeem it for his glory and your gain. O oh, come, all you despondent, your prospects dim and stark. The light of God's promises can penetrate the dark. Come if you were doubting when your faith ebbs and flows. Christ won't disparage you for questions that you pose. O oh, come, all ye exhausted, your heart is desert dry. When you're too numb to feel and you can't even cry. Come, all ye sinners, consumed by your disgrace. He won't condemn those who confess, enter his embrace. O oh, come, all ye bitter, another sin caused your grieving. To see the scars on Christ's body, give the grace that you're receiving. Don't come because you're good enough, come because Christ is. He'll embrace you warmly since your righteousness is his. Let's briefly pray and then I know you will have someone else come up. Father, I thank you for this. I need this. I need your grace. Help me to honor you and glorify you, but keep asking for it so you get a chance to do what only you can do, throw, so you can throw your weight around for me. Amen.